From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Forty million people need something from the Colorado River. Drinking water, irrigation, recreation. But what about the river itself? What does it need? We cannot be indifferent to nature, to what is happening. We really need to pay attention. In Parched, we travel to the river's end, where the ecosystem and cultures that have long depended on it are both in jeopardy. Then, elk and deer in Colorado endured a tough winter. So how will the reintroduction of wolves affect herds? There's a lot of differences in people's attitudes towards wildlife management that I think makes predictions pretty difficult on how this is all going to play out. We answer this Colorado Wonders question. I donated my car to Colorado Public Radio. That was the one thing that I could do to be helpful. Why not give something back to the community? It was easy. I would do it again. Car donations are an important part of CPR's operating budget. If you have a vehicle you're ready to part with, please consider donating it to Colorado Public Radio. You'll need to supply your title, but you won't even need to leave your home. And then just like that, your car turns into the news you rely on and the music you love. Get started now at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The Colorado River once flowed freely into the ocean. When the fresh water and salt water met, it created an explosion of life in the Mexican desert. But most of that lushness dried up when people used up the river. So what's there now and what might the future hold? Climate and environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis takes us to the Colorado River's end in Parched. We are about to hit the Mexico-U.S. border. And we are going to go see the end of the Colorado River. And this is my very first time ever leaving the country. I got a passport specifically for this trip. I'm driving in a beat-up rental car with my producer, Aaron. Okay, so here we are. We're at... We're at the border patrol. We're at border crossing. I've got my passport somewhere. Someone did say my passport photo made me look like an international spy. You do look like an international spy. <laughs> I think it's those bangs I had for like two weeks. Hectic border traffic and gates yield suddenly to Mexicali, Mexico. Population around one million. We're in Baja, California, where the peninsula stretches down into the ocean, creating that little hollow, like where an arm meets a body. This is the Gulf of California, and where the Colorado River ends. But even though this city relies on Colorado River water, lots of folks here have never seen the river. That's because there's no river in the riverbed. After people and crops in the U.S. have used up almost all of the water, here on the border is one final dam, Morelos Dam. It holds back the last of the Colorado River water. That water travels through canals to cities like Mexicali and Mexican farmers. That's really different than what happened for millions of years. The Colorado River used to flow to the ocean freely. 
But because of all the dams upstream and decades of drought, there's no longer a running Colorado River in Mexico. No river for people to swim in. No river for animals to drink or native plants to grow from. You're going to hear the people who live here and are working to restore their lost connection to the river. It's a glimpse of the past and what the future of the Colorado River could be. As we drive south, we see acres of farmland and canals filled with Colorado River water. But everything we're seeing right now used to be this marshy, lush wetland, and there were birds and and turtles and large cats like jaguars and a lush green forest where now everything is really dry. The Colorado River created these lost wetlands when fresh river water and salty ocean water collided and spread across almost two million acres of dry desert land. This meeting created an explosion of life where hundreds of different species of birds and fish and other animals could call home. And later, indigenous people called it home too. It was one of the most biologically diverse places on Earth. But now, as we drive south from Mexicali and pharmacies and factories succumb to acres of farmland, the dust kicks up. It's hard to imagine that old lushness. Right now, we're actually driving towards a place where people are working to try and restore some of the delta by using a lot less water. The place is called Laguna Grande. It's about an hour and a half outside of Mexicali. And we're headed there right now to learn a little bit more about this work. We reach an irrigation ditch filled with water pulled from behind Morelos Dam, the last dam on the Colorado River. We follow the stretch of blue cutting through green farm fields. Then we turn off on another dirt road. And then suddenly, away from the highway and the city and the farm vehicles, everything gets quiet. Except the trees. We're in a forest of native cottonwoods and willows. Through the trees flows the first natural-looking stream I've seen since we got here. And next to it, looking through the viewfinder of his long-lens camera at a bird, is Francisco Zamora. It's really beautiful. It's a green, mm. green heron. Did you just take that picture? Wow. Yeah. What a beautiful photo. What a beautiful bird. Tell us again what yeah. that is. I think it's a green, green heron. It seems unremarkable. A bird watcher snaps a photo by a river. But this moment took a team, lots and lots of work, money, and a vision. None of this, the bird, the tree, the water, was here 15 years ago. This land was barren. What we see here now is not the vast wetlands that once existed, but it's a start. And Francisco 
a scientist and nature lover with the Sonoran Institute, has fought for this place to exist. After the 1960s, there just wasn't much water left here. It was all used up or held back behind upstream dams. And each drop of the river that did make it to Mexico had someone's name on it. The environment was an afterthought. And due to dams and drought, the river now almost never finishes its journey millions of years in the making. But that changed briefly in the 1990s. A series of floods brought the wetlands back to life. This is when Francisco got a peek at a possible future, what a resurrected Colorado River Delta could look like. It was his very first visit. He grabbed a boat and some friends, and they explored the Colorado River Delta. But years of drought had left it overgrown with invasive salt cedar shrubs. That's why we got lost. The main channel kind of disappeared. We had a GPS, but we couldn't get to where we were supposed to go. And we spent one night with only like one gallon of water. I still remember, of course, the, the image of the river and the sound of the birds. You know, we spent the night there and it was quiet. It was only the three of us. It was cold. It was in, in February, I think it was, or January. Eventually, Francisco and his friends escaped the maze of swampy wetlands. But the memory of canoeing there, under the stars, is still close to his heart. I keep that image with me all the time. Because, of course, after that, you know, the drought began, you know, 2000, 2001. And I remember telling myself, oh, that's okay. It's going to be maybe a few years, five years. But the drought in 2000 went longer than five years. It hasn't stopped even today. It's now a 20-plus year mega drought. Francisco's memories left him with a deep sense of connection to this place and a vision to hold on to of the Colorado River Delta with water. He started having ideas. How could he use that glimpse that the floodwaters had offered him and use it to chart a new future for the Colorado River Delta? It was kind of an adventure for, for us. You need that, I think, to kind of mark or change your life. I think you need that type of images to be able to continue because it hasn't been easy. And of course, in life, there are many things that, I mean, are difficult. But, you know, 20 years ago, they, they call the Delta the dead Delta, you know? When something is dead, there's nothing else. So it, it was like a, a mission impossible, you know? Meanwhile, 30 miles away from the site of Francisco's boat trip, Antonia Torres-Gonzalez was listening to stories from her mother, 
about what the Colorado River Delta looked like decades ago, when there was so much water before the dams, and what that loss has meant for people who have lived here for thousands of years. Antonia is now an elder of the Cocopaw tribe. Antonia's mother always told her the Cocopaw came from the river. Pues cuando ellos surgieron de abajo de la del río, se puede decir, de abajo del del vientre del río Colorado. Entonces, eran dos When they rose from the river, from underneath the belly of the Colorado River, they were twins that used to live in the water. The moment came for them to get out and they came out. And when they came out, they didn't know what to do. They started to make figures out of the mud. And they made the indigenous tribes that live in Baja, California. And one of the tribes was the tribe of the Colorado River, which was us, the Cocopa people. That's how the Cocopa came from the clay of the Colorado River. We meet Antonia out of the blazing sun in the Cocopa Museum. It's a small, single-story building covered in murals. One of them shows the creation story, twin fetuses suspended in a swirl of blue. There's a thatched roof patio for shade. While we talk, an occasional neighborhood dog wanders by. The museum is here to help preserve Cocopa history and knowledge to ensure that their culture doesn't disappear with the river. That's Antonia's mission, too. Antonia grew up here in the Colorado River Delta. She remembers when there was water here. The river was very deep. My mom saw the ships that would come in from this side. In one of the curves here, near the house by the hill, there was a little pier where ships would go and drop off goods. Antonia and her mother are skilled at fishing. Back before the dams, the wetlands provided the cocoa pot endless fish to eat, materials to use for homes and clothing, medicine and healthy air, and of course, water to drink. When that connection was lost and the delta dried up, so did a sustainable way of life for members of the Cocopa tribe. It gave us everything that we needed as indigenous people of the river, because we ate fish, amaranth, and some other things that the river produced to sustain us. And so today, we've also lost our food. The Cocopa are known as the river people. But the river was taken from them. When southwestern U.S. states signed the all-important 1922 compact that portioned out Colorado River water, it didn't leave much water for Mexico. And it certainly didn't leave any water for the environment itself for places like the Colorado River Delta, or for people like Antonia. So now, Antonia and Francisco have been fighting to give the river itself a voice. 
when you put people and nature together, it makes the environment, you know. So we, we are part of the environment. After Francisco got to see the Colorado River Delta filled with water in the late 90s, the drought hit. But he couldn't get the idea of a lush wetland out of his head. So he, along with locals and other organizations, began the long process to make that vision a reality. They worked with the Mexican government to secure 1,200 acres of dry earth that was once lush and green. They saw hope in the land. There were still a few native plants growing here, but Francisco needed water. So he and the coalition of organizations worked together to buy water rights off of local farmers, to start regrowing a forest at the end of the Colorado River. We cannot just allow nature to disappear and be indifferent. I will say that to people in, in not only in the U.S., but in, also here in Mexicali. We cannot be indifferent to what is happening. We really need to pay attention and, and be able to find ways to contribute. And we all benefit from that. So Francisco was on his way to creating the lush wetland he knew the Colorado River Delta deserved. When a river reaches the ocean, pollutants flow out of the river basin. The water and soils are richer with nutrients. The whole system is more biodiverse. There are more fish, beavers, otters, and birds. But we, humans, have stopped up the Colorado River. So all that connection was lost. Francisco and Antonia both yearned for the river to meet the sea. That's after the break. When a Colorado family encountered a Brazilian flower called the toothache plant, they decided to make a liqueur with it. The numbing's coming, though. <laughs> the numbing is coming. What did that take? Six, seven, seven, eight seconds? Tingala numbs your mouth and stimulates your taste buds at the same time. The taste test and the tale of the rising Colorado company that makes Tingala, the story and pictures at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The Colorado River flows through seven U.S. states and ends in Mexico. But the water barely reaches the ocean anymore. And the lush wetlands of the Delta are becoming a distant memory. Today in CPR's podcast, Parched, we meet people who are trying to restore the region, despite our tremendous thirst in the West. Here again, host Michael Elizabeth Sackis. Francisco's dream to bring back the willows, birds, and beavers, and to replenish this patch of wetland was slowly coming true. But part of that vision was to also see the river and the ocean meet once again. To make that happen, Francisco and the coalition of groups he worked with would need a lot more water than what could be bought off local farmers. 
It would mean somehow convincing the governments of the U.S. and Mexico to try something never done before. It would mean these two nations would have to dedicate water not to a cash crop like alfalfa or a new city tap, but to the environment itself to purposely let Colorado River water flow into the ocean at a time when there was less and less water to go around. Francisco had his work cut out for him. On the ground, Francisco wasn't working alone. Celia Alvarado Camacho has spent more than 12 years at the restoration site, carefully planting trees and tending native plants. She's wearing a big hat and sunglasses to avoid the sun's glare. And she's equipped with gardening gloves. She takes me on a walk through the forest of trees that she's helped grow. Celia moved to Mexicali in the 90s. Like a lot of people born after the big reservoirs were built, she had no idea that the Colorado River once flowed freely here, or that the city's bustling streets were once just miles away from a massive wetland that teemed with life. She never got to experience that beauty herself. Solamente... I just heard what people who lived here used to say. They used to say that there was a ton of water flowing. They used to fish a lot. All the people in the community used to fish. There were fish everywhere. It was very pretty. Celia has worked alongside Francisco to bring back some of this past. So it can be part of her future. She never got to see how things once were. But because of her efforts, she now has a chance to create her own connection to the Delta. When she first started here, she said the river was almost dead. The picture is starting to change colors. It only looked like a desert. It only looked dry. It's starting to come back to life, to become green again. So from something ugly, now it's turning into a beautiful picture that has a different landscape. It has more life. This is what we're trying to do. We're trying to create more habitat for animals so that wildlife that was at risk of extinction can return. The native fishes that are dying, not only because of natural disasters, but also at the hands of man. What we're trying to do is to recover what the river was before. After 13 years, this picture that I can paint now, it has more life, more color. We jump in a truck to see where some newly planted trees are being irrigated with Colorado River water. Celia has helped plant tens of thousands of native willows, mesquite, and cottonwoods. She says she's used to heavy labor and that she likes to work in nature. In my case, she was accustomed to 
we've used these tools. We're using machetes, shovels, all these things I was already used to using at my house. And because of the lack of work here in the valley, when I started working, work was scarce. And so for me, I saw it as a great opportunity to have an income for my family. But even apart from that, I started falling in love with the work and with the results we're seeing now. Celia shows us a tree getting watered. At its base is a small hose with a trickle of Colorado River water targeted at its roots. Celia says that whenever she plants a new tree and it attracts a new bird, she gets excited. One day, she heard a bird she'd never heard before. A yellow-billed cuckoo. To verify that was what Celia heard, field researchers played this recording from the Audubon Society. And a real-life yellow-billed cuckoo responded. It was confirmed the bird had returned to the wetlands. It's an example of how the water and trees are inviting back long-lost native species. We find Francisco sitting on a wooden bench alongside a wetland that's filled with Colorado River water. The sun is starting to set. He's sitting underneath a tall tree. The beautiful golden hour light is hitting its leaves as they blow in the wind. Let's, let's listen to the sound. So the, these trees are, the scientific name is Populus. And now that we have, and it's quiet and you can hear it, you know, you think about it, it sounds like a stadium full of people. So the populace, you know, the, the people. Francisco realized his dream. Over a couple of decades, with lots of collaboration, he successfully restored this patch of wetland. And now there are native trees like these. This new wetland, while maybe not like what he saw 25 years ago, gives Francisco hope for a brighter future. He has a vision for a healthy, vibrant, lush river and all the life it could support. We understand, you know, the limitations of water and resources. Yeah, of course, we understand that. But we, we know that by restoring like a network of sites, we can bring back that kind of ecosystem functionality of the river. So the habitat and the benefits to wildlife and to people. This particular site that what you see here, we're going to bring people from, from the local communities to experiences. And people from Mexicali and from the U.S., 
from Arizona, California, Colorado, uh, from everywhere. I did have an interesting conversation with a, a broccoli farmer in Yuma, Arizona, and he said, you know, why are we, why, why are we sending water to Mexico right now? Why are we doing this for the environment? Like, why are we, we're in such a bad drought right now. Why would we be doing this? What, what is your response to that? Okay, I I will think before I act and then pray before I think, (laughs) right? Uh, Certainly, it's, it's a good question. It's, uh, I would say many people probably have the same question, right? Of course, the Delta is on, mainly on the Mexican side, right? So Mexico, imagine, what, I, what would you say if I say, okay, no, Grand Canyon, no longer important. You think the U.S. will say, oh, yeah. So Mexico... So the Delta is important. I mean, it's part of our territory. I mean, and people depend on it, and it's just by itself has an intrinsic value. And the long-term vision is to restore pockets of these lost wetlands on small amounts of Colorado River water to create a migration corridor for birds and other native wildlife, and for people like Francisco to have a place to reconnect to what was once almost totally lost. You can walk a few hours and the only thing you will see is cottonwood and willow trees. And I think that's how it used to be. Now, you you see also the water here. That's how it was. I get the feeling that the birds are happy here. And, uh, you know, I I don't know. That that, that to me is, when I take a picture, I kind of see that the bird is smiling or it's, you know, just happy. Uh, so that's kind of enough for me. I, I mean, it tells me that we are doing a good job here, that it's working. That's, you know, it's, it's kind of my indicator. But Francisco still had one even bigger goal. He was trying to get the United States and Mexican governments to agree to do something unprecedented Dedicate water to the environment, not farms or cities, just the trees and the birds and the beavers. And finally, in 2012, the two governments signed an agreement. Francisco says it was the first time in the world's history that two different countries came together to dedicate water to the river itself. The historic agreement was signed, and Morelos Dam, that last dam on the U.S.-Mexico border, groaned open. For the first time in decades, water rushed down the dry Colorado riverbed. And there were a lot of people there, you know, trying to get the best spot to see the water flowing. And... Just suddenly someone say, hey, it's open. It's like a, like a wave in the, in, in the ocean. You can see the, a big wave coming. It, more, more or less like that, just from one of the gates. And the water began to flow. Francisco was beside himself with excitement. 
you can hear it in this video from that day. Most of the time, the riverbed is dry, but as you can see now, you know, there is water coming in the river and you know, the water attracts people from the local communities here. So that's why this area is very important because people get connected again with the river. You know, kids especially, they haven't seen the water here, so this might be the first time for them to see water here in the river. Someone asked me, do you remember what you said? <laughs> I said, uh, no, I don't remember. I think he said, oh, you, you were saying water, water. And of course, then we have a, a video. And yes, I was saying, hey, water, because water was coming pretty close to where we were. So we began the celebration. We have a bottle of, uh, I don't know if it was champagne or something. And then um, I remember when the water was really flowing to the main channel. I had my little camera. So I almost kind of went down on the ground and touched the water and, and got a video of water flowing. And eventually, that water, it started flowing all the way to the ocean. And it happened again and again. Back at the Cocopa Museum, Antonia tells us about the day the river reached the ocean. A day she and her mother had waited for, for decades. They watched the moment together. Antonia has the date tattooed on her hand. And then, having seen the water reach the ocean, Antonia's mother passed away. El que mi mamá tuvo esta conexión para con el agua del río al mar, pues es algo muy muy sagrado para mí. Es algo como que los dioses hicieron todo posible para que The fact that my mother had that connection with the water from the river to the sea, it's something that's very sacred for me. It's like the gods did everything possible so that the water would get to the sea and it would connect with my mom coming here for the last time to her place of origin. I mean, it was very emotional to me. And I believe for a lot of people, for her friends, for anybody that knew about it, it was emotional for all of us. Because this is exactly what she wanted, that the water would come here. To her, water from the river was very sacred, just as it is for me now. But what Antonia and her mother wanted most of all was for the water to come to their community, to fill the dry riverbed near the museum so people could fish and swim once more. But it never reached them. Who are we to not deserve the water? We do deserve the water because from ancestral times, this was our river and the other tribes that come from the Colorado. You know, what I would ask is that they wouldn't take our water. And hopefully in the future, the water that they have been sending to the side of the Colorado River here in Mexico would actually make it all the way to our river here. That's the future she wants. Because she says when the Colorado River went away, many Cocopa people left. 
she wants them to have something to return to so her culture and community can thrive again through the reconnection of the river with the ocean. She wants water to reach her community so they can reforest their land. Para que los niños tengan un poco más de conciencia acerca de pues de que tenemos de cuidar lo que tenemos, lo poco que nos ha quedado en el, del río y que So that the kids have a little bit more consciousness about the fact that we have to take care of what we have of the little that remains in the river and to learn to take care of the animals that inhabit the river. And to learn also to take care of the plants that we have and continue to rescue our ancestral practices that have survived. I am a traditional cook and I want to be able to save this part of our ancestral cooking. Yo soy cocinero tradicional y y quiero pues rescatar esta parte de la cocina tradicional de nosotros. Antonia says, when the river itself dies, so does culture, so do ways of life, so do people. That's why the river itself deserves respect. If the health of the Colorado River is an afterthought, everything that depends on it is in jeopardy. The river is our mother, the river is our father, and we have to respect and love it. For her and Francisco, the moments the Colorado River reaches the ocean are symbolic, a vision brought to life of the way things could be. Francisco tells me and my producer Aaron that he got to see the moment from the air. I was kind of telling, hey, hey, I was kind of screaming inside the airplane. And I wanted to scream even more and kind of, you know, show them, hey, that's a connection, you know. Sometimes, you know, the, the, the language sometimes becomes a, a barrier because English is not my first language. But I think just the expression and, and the excitement, I think it's, 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 you know, it tells you more, you know, than... The, the actual words that you can say at that time. Why were you so excited in that moment? I really wanted to kind of uh, prove uh, myself and prove that it, it, that it could be done, you know, that we, you could put water in, in the river and, and at least, even if it is for one day or a few days, reconnect that with the, with the sea. And, and, you know, it, it, it's not that we're going to restore it that connection every day, no, not necessarily, but you start thinking, well, what, what is feasible to do and how we can accomplish that, you know? So it, it was proof to me that I wasn't that crazy <laughs> when I was, you know, thinking about that and that, you know, pr- provided a lot of hope for the future. The Colorado River and its water cycle is why forests grow in the mountains filled with elk and insects. It's the coveted fishing hole with the incredible rainbow trout. It's the river that carved the Grand Canyon, the reservoirs and the rapids people boat on. It's the monsoon rains in the afternoon on a hot summer day in July. 
It's the snow-capped mountains to ski and snowboard down. The Colorado River is the reason there's life in the Southwest. And all of us here are connected because of it. The Cocopaw creation story emphasizes that the river itself is the reason why there's life. The river is why there's life here. Why I'm here. The West is nothing without it. And this is our moment to decide what the future looks like for all of us. Imagine if the tens of millions of people who all have a stake in the outcome of this story pushed ourselves and our community leaders to rethink our relationship with water and the Colorado River. Deciding to let grass lawns return to native plant life, recycling the water we waste to feed trees and supply city taps, agreeing to put a higher value on water as a finite resource so people treat it that way, collaborating to find new sources of water from places like the ocean, farmers and ranchers having the tools and learning the skills to keep growing food in a smarter way with incentives to keep water in the river, and states, tribes, and communities agreeing that water should flow freely in the river so our natural world can thrive. That means all the voices who have a stake in this future have a say in what it looks like. But all of that requires the same spirit that Francisco and his collaborators brought to the Colorado River Delta, where the ocean and the river meet. It requires understanding the choices we made to get here. It requires rethinking our relationship to water in a dry place. It requires enthusiastic collaboration. And maybe, most of all, it requires hope. Hope is essential. The climate is changing, but so can we. This forest of tens of thousands of willows and cottonwoods, planted by people, one by one, where a river once flowed, shows us it's possible. Parched with host Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR's podcast about the Colorado River, the people who rely on it, and solutions in the face of overuse and climate change. The complete first season is everywhere you get podcasts and at CPR.org. We'll be right back to wonder about wolves. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Indie 1023 with things you can bring to the Underground Music Showcase. Bring some suntan lotion. That's that's definitely a must. Fanny packs and or hip bags. LED gloves. GoPros are good. And with all the shouting, singing, cheering you're most likely taking part in, Lip Balm is always a good festival friend. That's just some of the things you can bring to this year's UMS. The Underground Music Showcase. July 28th through the 30th. Three days, multiple stages, hundreds of bands, and one app to help you map them all. Google Play and at the Apple Store. Tickets, weekend passes, and weekend four-packs. Undergroundmusicshowcase.com. Info on where we're set up. ND1023.org. Now let's wonder about wolves with a listener in Summit County. CPR's Tom Hess fielded a question through Colorado Wonders that it turns out many people are curious about. It was a tough winter for wildlife in Colorado, particularly in the northwest corner of the state. It got Robert Fisher wondering. There were reports, I think on CPR, about the very deep snow in the northern central mountains of Colorado and how there was going to be a large die-off of deer and elk. And I was just very curious, how would the planning for release of wolves be influenced by the die-off of elk and deer unexpectedly? Wildlife managers intend to have paws on the ground by the end of this year, making good on a ballot measure approved by voters to reintroduce wolves to the state. Much has been made of how wolves might affect livestock, so what about elk and deer? That's something Andy Holland is spending a lot of time on. And his first order of business is data. And then new this year, we have three brand new elk monitoring areas. And in all of these places, we're looking at survival of both adults and juveniles, as well as distribution and movement of animals from the satellite callers, and then cause of mortality. And so all those things will allow us to compare how things have changed or not once we have wolves established. Holland is the big game manager for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. The primary things that I think we'll be looking at are adult survival and calf survival. And I'm focusing on elk as it relates to wolves primarily because they're the preferred prey for wolves. What the data shows can help inform what wildlife managers can do to ensure healthy animal herds. More on that in a second. Holland says there are just a few things that Colorado managers can expect with wolf reintroduction based on the experiences in other places. What we've learned from other states that have experience with wolves is that mule deer will be a lot less likely to be affected than elk. The other thing that we've learned that seems pretty universal is that elk will change their behavior and distribution to avoid predation by wolves. And one of the principal ways that it seems like they do that in other states is to increase the use of refuge areas. And by that, I mean places near towns where there's people. And so they're essentially avoiding predation by staying closer to people. So could wolves decimate wildlife herds that are already coming out of a bad winter? Might predation help make herds more resilient, as one study on Yellowstone elk suggests? What about chronic wasting disease or habitat? Holland says it's just apples and oranges. Or perhaps wolves and weimariners. There's so much difference in population productivity between Colorado and more northern states And quite honestly, there's a lot of differences in people's attitudes towards wildlife management that I think makes predictions pretty difficult on how this is all going to play out. One thing that's certain to play out is better information about Colorado's wildlife. The wolf reintroduction has allowed CPW to scale up their monitoring efforts, and Holland expects to learn a lot about deer and elk in Colorado. Another thing that 
states have seen is as they've focused on wolf predation, it's brought mountain lion predation rates on elk sort of into more focus. And they're realizing their mountain lion predation rates are higher than I think many of us thought. As for what game managers can do once wolves start preying on elk, Holland says their most obvious tool is the one they're already using to protect herds from tough winters like this past one, changes in hunting licenses, particularly for female herd animals. We account for any additional mortality, whether it be from winter or predation, by reducing female quotas. You know, there's a 19-year trend of reducing those cow elk licenses to maintain those elk populations at stable to increasing. So it's a, it's a very nuanced Elk are doing well, they're stable to increasing at the expense of a lot of cow elk hunting opportunity. While hunting licenses may be the most obvious tool for managing deer and elk herds, Holland says that's not necessarily the best or most effective. What all these species need most is as much healthy environment as possible to roam in. The more habitat we have and the better quality that habitat is, the better our big game animals will be able to handle either predation or severe winters. Wolf reintroduction is set to begin by the end of this year. The state plans to release between 10 and 15 wolves each year to phase in the change. I'm Tom Hess, CPR News. What about life in Colorado makes you curious? Send us your questions at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders, and we may answer them on air and online. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to my pack, Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.